Chapter Sixteen of Miss Frances Baird, Detective, by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I resign. Don't ask me why I believed in Fredericks, with nothing to back him but an air of frankness, nothing to help him but a handsome face, and nothing on which to rest his case but his own word or his own silence against overwhelming evidence. If you did ask me, I should simply have to reply that I didn't know. What I did know was that I was in love with him, and that he just simply was not a murderer, all the facts in the world to the contrary notwithstanding. That was why I had resolved to go blindly ahead, without questioning his strange refusal to talk on the most important of all the evidence against him, and without bothering as to where the result, either way, would leave me. To go blindly forward, I say, as his advocate. But literally, my first step was backward, toward the house. Kemp was coming down the walk, as Fredericks had said, only ten yards away. "'He's all right, is he?' whispered Kemp as he passed me. "'Nothing new?' I shook my head in a way that might be interpreted as he pleased, and went on until I met one of the grooms. "'Here,' I said, "'take this message into town at once, and see that it goes by night rates.' What I wrote was, "'Watkins, Watkins, Detective Agency, New York. It is a fine evening, but it will rain before morning. The band, as you will learn, is playing after the ball, but I am enjoying myself, notwithstanding that, number twelve. In spite of appearances, and every reason for so being, I was not mad. This was merely a code message to the chief, and it meant that he was my chief no longer. Being interpreted, it read, By the time you get this there will probably be another for you from Kemp, saying that I have betrayed him. That means that I have differed with him radically about the case, and as he is my senior in service, I hereby resign my place in your employ." will return the money upon coming back to town, after conducting my own investigation along my own lines, and arresting the real criminal. Francis Baird For I could tell pretty well what Kemp would do, and although the financial end of the matter was uncertain, I was resolved upon professional success. Nor, as the speedy result showed, was I far wrong in my estimate of Kemp's conduct. Neither he nor Fredericks appeared at dinner, which, the others still confining themselves to their rooms, the parents for natural reasons, and the surviving son for reasons spirituous, I ate in solitary state, and ate heartily, too, for I was done up and about famished. I had just finished, and stepped out for a moment on the porch, when I heard the rapid, cat-like step of my quantum coadjutor, and Kemp appeared. It was providentially dark, and I couldn't see his face, but I could make out that, as he came to a stop before the chair into which I had hurriedly sunk, he struck a most tragic attitude. "'Hello,' I said. "'Had your dinner?' "'No,' he replied, "'and I don't want any.' "'That's too bad, for you'll miss an uncommonly good one.' "'I can't help it. I've got something serious to say to you.' "'Yes?' I wondered. "'Miss Baird,' he pursued. "'Oh, I know so well that tone of the savage suitor.' I started to say something to you last night, which the subsequent developments of this, sir, tragedy interfered with. How you fixed up matters with the chief, I don't know, but now something more difficult has arisen, and I want to get your answer to a certain question before I make my report to Mr. Watkins. I'll be glad, I'm sure, to give you any information in my power. 
It seems to me you're only too ready to give information to anyone who asks it. I always like, I modestly confessed, to be as accommodating as I can. Then what I want to know is, will you marry me or won't you? Really, Mr. Kemp, I said reflectively, I don't see how I can be so accommodating as that. Oh, don't be foolish. Think twice. Will you save your bread and butter by marrying me, or will you refuse me and lose it? He was glowering. I couldn't see his face, but I knew that the little man was glowering. As I am not going to marry, I replied, there is no reason why you should worry about my bread and butter. At that he broke out. All right, he cried, that settles you. I've been talking to Fredericks, and I know that somebody has given him a hint of what we suspect. He wouldn't own up when I tried to corner him. Really? Yes, really. But I could see well enough that somebody had leaked. Now the question is, who is it? As I am the only person beside you who knows whom we suspect, it looks rather as if it must be I, doesn't it? It was you. Yes, it was. What? 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 Do you mean you have the face to own up to it? That is exactly what I mean to have. And how do you dare? Because, my dear Mr. Kemp, you suspect the wrong man. Oh, I do, do I? And when did your opinions change so radically? They have changed. Let that suffice. The dear little fellow was waxing threateningly. Oh, it was too delightful. Well, I won't let it suffice. You have given away our case. And you know what that means at the home office? It means, I presume, dismissal for any employee who commits so heinous an offense. Just exactly. But that, my dear Mr. Kemp, does not affect me. Why not? I have in my hand a telegram which I'll send the chief at once. By all means, send it. To your chief. He is no longer mine. He isn't? Since when? Since an hour and a half ago. I have resigned my position in the Watkins Agency. That settled Mr. Kemp. He fumed and swore, and did all in his power to furnish me with the amusement which, after so hard a day's work, I thought that I had earned, and he wound up thus. All right, I know what it all means. It means that you've been silly enough to fall in love with the fellow. I saw that coming all along. Well, I'll tell you two things. In the first place, you haven't got ahead of me after all, for, when Laird told me you were whispering to him down there at the gate, I began to suspect what was going on, and went to town and swore to warrant, which was served not a quarter of an hour ago. And in the second place, he'll learn what you've done toward convicting him, and he'll swing on your own testimony. Good night. Now that was rather shabby of Kemp, and, though I would not have had him know it for worlds, he left me rather scared. He had planned well, I'll grant him that, and by his quick action in hurrying the arrest, he had done not a little toward forcing my hand. That had scared me a good deal, but what scared me far more was the prospect of having to tell my large part in the working out of the case against the prisoner, of having to confess, not so much to the world as to him, the fact that his detention was largely the result of my spying into his private affairs, my eavesdropping over his love-making, my theft of his sweetheart's letters. What was I to do? I had thrown up my position with the Watkins Agency. I had been as yet retained by no other party to the affair in hand. I was almost without resources, nearly without prospects, and utterly without standing in the case. I looked at my watch. Ten o'clock. 
Obviously, there was no need of worrying for several hours what I was to do, because for just that many hours there was not anything that could be done. Even Kemp must remain inactive for that length of time. Even I would have been inactive had things been absolutely favorable to me. I determined, therefore, to do the same sensible thing that I would have done had I not severed my connection with the agency, and, more or less, caused the arrest of the man I loved. I would go to bed. I did go to bed, and, strange to say, to sleep. I dozed off easily, and never stirred again until eight in the morning, when the maid tapped at my door and entered in response to my mumbled permission with the rolls and coffee. At once I found ready formed in my head a definite plan of procedure. "'Have you been to Mr. Deneen's room yet?' I asked. She said that she had. "'And how is he?' "'He's very much better, miss. He's still awfully broken up, of course, but, oh, so much improved.' That settled it. I dressed and went at once to see Mr. Deneen. He was, indeed, still awfully broken up. In fact, he looked even worse, to my mind, in the way of age, than he had the day before, when there was yet the touch of fever in his blood. Now that this had left him, he was not only wrinkled, he appeared actually dried up and gone cold. But his eyes were clear, and though roving as ever, more than wantonly sharp, and I fancied that, under the marks of his terrible ordeal, there was the plain sign of relief. "'Good morning,' he said, with something not unlike a smile lighting up that strange trap-like mouth of his. "'Gaddon,' he added to the musty little doctor who was hovering beside the bed, "'go away for a while. I want to talk to Miss Baird.' The physician obeyed, and left me alone with his patient. "'Now, then,' said the latter, "'what progress?' That, I replied, is just what I want to talk to you about. Mr. Kemp thought that this was a case of suicide, until I told him the truth yesterday. He now thinks that Mr. Fredericks killed your son, because Mr. James accused him of the theft. I differed with him. We couldn't reconcile our two theories, and so I had to resign my place in Mr. Watkins' employ. I ask you to remember that it was I who first discovered that there was a murder, that if it hadn't been for me— Nobody would ever have known that there was a murder at all. And I ask you further whether you want me to still remain in this case on my own hook. The old man ran me over carefully with his keen eyes. What conclusion he finally reached, I don't know. But I stood his survey as well as I could, and at last he said, Yes. That was all for fully two minutes. I did not know whether it would seem unprofessional on my part to thank him, or whether I ought to be silent. I have always found, however, that when you are in any doubt whether you ought to talk or hold your tongue, you ought to hold your tongue, and so I kept quiet. Finally he went on. Yes, you had better stay. The more minds on a thing like this, the better, I guess. If Kemp wants to know why you're here, you just needn't tell him, and neither will I. Now then, you say your theory of the case differs from Kemp's, well, what is your theory? That stumped me. I dodged. Mr. Deneen, I said, it is not our custom to tell what we think until we have arrived at a point where we are ready to risk our reputations for our beliefs. Mr. Kemp may belong to a more sudden school. For my part, I go slowly. However, just as soon as I have something definite to report, you may be sure that I shall report it. In the meantime, I will only say 
that I do not as yet believe Mr. Fredericks guilty. The man was beginning to be a puzzle to me. He had known, of course, from the start of our interview, that this was my attitude. But although he had commissioned me to remain on the case, he yet displayed a sense of displeasure at my last remark. Ha! Huh, he grunted. Between you and me, Miss Baird, I'm not so sure about that. But here's the way I stand. I'll have Kemp stay on this case, because, as I said, two heads are better than one. And I'll tell him that, so far as I know, you're here on your own hook. Understand? I want you two to work independent, and then to let me know the results. I've been a good deal talked about in my time as a man with an eye for nothing but money, and now I don't propose people shall think I'm not keen about having the murderer of my son caught just because of the expense. I don't want anybody to think that I'm not willing to spend my last dollar in catching the guilty party, whoever he may be, because, eh, that wouldn't be true, would it? He looked at me hard again, and again I was puzzled. "'Why, no, of course not, Mr. Deneen,' said I. "'My keeping you on here this way shows that, don't it, eh?' "'Certainly. Oh, certainly.' Huh. All right. Now run along and get to work.' End of chapter 16